Welcome to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. With over 150 years of experience and deep industry knowledge, Weber Wenzel is the leading full-service law firm on the African continent. In the past, broadcast reporters, particularly from the public broadcaster, would be sent to rural areas or small towns. They'd be based there. That they would be, they'd do stories from Parliament or from the courts that no one would do. We don't hear that anymore. Our vision has become narrowed by social media and about what the kind of headlines are. And sometimes it's just a circle, which deal with social media reflecting stories and the stories reflecting social media, and often mistakes are made in that circle. This is Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. I'm Dario Milo. Welcome to another episode in our series on media law. Today, we're going to be looking generally at media ethics and the role of media regulators. This is a broad subject, but at its core, it really relates to how journalists should hold the facts above all else and the processes that they follow to get these right. Um, as Justice Mosaneke once said, journalists must worship at the altar of accuracy, which is one of the phrases I always quote when I train journalists. To help me discuss this important topic here today, we're very fortunate to have the press ombudsman, Pippa Green. On top of this prestigious position, she holds an MSc in journalism from New York's Columbia University and has held many senior editorial positions in both the print and broadcast media, as well as being a member of the SABC board between 2010 and 2013. And I also have Associate Professor Glenda Daniels, Glenda joined the Department of Media Studies at Wits University in 2015. She's also the chair of SANEF's Diversity and Ethics Committee, a member of the Press Council, and a member of the South African Communications Association. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Dario. Thanks, Dario. Lovely to be here. South Africa has had a spate of media scandals in recent years, so much so that the South African Editors Forum has set up the Satchwell Commission to inquire into this issue. Are the problems, do you think, isolated, such as the high-profile apologies by the Sunday Times in relation to the rogue unit stories? Or do you think there's a more systemic problem with media credibility in the country? Glenda, maybe maybe you want to have a stab at that first. Dario, I don't think that it's a matter of isolated problems. I think what has happened is almost a reflection of the kind of factional politics we've had in the country entering the media zone. So, you know, there are a lot of things that are impinging upon the media from without on top of everywhere, you know, every sort of angle you can possibly get, legislative impediments, then you have media freedom issues and you've had retrenchments in the newsroom and then you've had the Zuma era of corruption, factional politics. Enter people then who want to make use of journalists, powerful people in society, because they can sway opinions, they can influence, and we've had this a crazy decade of one mistake, inverted commas, because, you know, I think people were not led down the garden path. I think certain people were actually being played by and enjoyed being playing mm-hmm. the factional politics, if you take the South Rogue unit story, for example. 
So yeah, I don't think it's just isolated, random and uh, messy. I think there's something that, that's sinister that actually did happen within the body politic of journalism in South Africa. And, and I mean, later on, we'll talk about how perhaps we should address this, or if we can address it yes. going forward. And Pippa, any reflections from you? There's an active disinvestment in news by not only media companies, but by broadcasting companies as well. So even the public broadcaster, which is a great sadness for me, is that they've replaced news and current affairs shows on radio, which is the biggest medium of news in the country, with talk shows, because talk mm. is cheap. Your listeners provide the content and they're quite flattered to provide it without payment. I mean, we can talk about some of the ethical mistakes yes. at a later stage, but the point I want to make about the disinvestment in news. Yes. So in the, in the past, broadcast reporters, particularly from the public broadcaster, would be sent to rural areas or yes. small towns. They'd be based there, that they would be, they'd do stories from parliament or from the courts that no one would do. We don't hear that anymore. Our vision has become narrowed by social media and about what the kind of headlines are in. Sometimes it's just a circle. As we deal with these stories, I mean, I've done two, dealt with two cases in the last mm -hmm. week, which deal with social media reflecting mm. stories and stories reflecting social media. And the, the, the often mistakes are made in that circle. And I'd like to come back to social media because it's a particular issue that arises with media ethics. And we'll come back to that, but I suppose Pippa, flowing from that, I mean, at its essence, it seems to me that the press code is a value system for journalists to live by. It's, it's the DNA of a good journalist is to abide by those principles in the press code. And, you know, the code says, as journalists, we commit ourselves to the highest standards to maintain credibility, to keep the trust of the public. As a recently appointed press ombudsman, what's your general impression from the complaints you've received? I mean, could you identify any trends or patterns about sort of frequent mistakes that journalists are making where they're not complying with these ethical principles? I think one of the biggest is right to reply. I don't understand why it's the biggest breach because it's relatively easy to do. But often what happens is that they are approached for comment and then not all the allegations are put to them. So I had to rule in, I mean, to my Sadness, I must yes. say, but, but put this on the record to get in favor in certain respects of the pastor of Lukau, the Congolese pastor who did mm -hmm. the resurrection and does these miracle healings, which are all have all been exposed as being very suspect and collects an enormous amount of money from people in his church. But a reporter from City Press did a story about, well, two stories. One was about his senior church officials falling out with him. And it was related to a story she did the next week on charges of sexual assault and harassment and so on. The sexual assault was put in the headline or put in the story, the first story, but the allegation wasn't put to him. Mm -hmm. So I had to actually find in his favor on, on that score. I mean, there's been a recent ruling I've done involving the premier of the Eastern Cape, Oscar Mabuyani, and money that was taken from a small rural municipality, some of which went to pay, allegedly went to pay a deposit on a Bentley for an MEC. And uh, the editor tweeted about it, but that allegation wasn't specifically put to Mabuyani's office. It didn't, mm -hmm. it didn't involve Mabuyani. So it's kind of, and I think often those are editorial oversight issues that you you need an editor to check that all of those allegations and the other i'll say very briefly is 
it's just verification. It sounds yes. like an obvious thing, yes. but but often what is an allegation, even a strong allegation and a supposition, is put as fact, and it's it's not common cause. So so that is something that I think is often um, observed in the breach. And the rogue unit stories were key were key examples, examples of, of that. that. I mean, certainly when I do vetting of stories before publication or viewing of broadcasts, etc., you know, it's almost as if there is this checklist that needs to be complied with. But certainly things like right of reply are integral to the process. Um, and I will say to journalists, it's, it's really the low-hanging fruit in terms of winning a case. Because frankly, whether you're before the BCCSA, the Ombudsman, or even a court on a Saturday to stop a story that's going to appear on the Sunday. What the court or the judicator really is interested in in that pressure scenario is fairness. Did you fairly treat the other side? Mm. And if you did, you know, prior restraints and, and things like that should be avoided. So right of reply for me is, is a critical one. On the right to reply thing, it's not just about not getting right to replies. The journalists also don't give enough time. So yes. if you know your deadline is Thursday night, for the Sunday story. You don't phone the person on Thursday when you actually had the whole story on the Monday. And it's almost like, I, I don't know, just from working in newsrooms myself, you know that journalists can sometimes cut corners there to say, um, okay, there's the email with the 10 questions, but you know, everyone's busy. People are doing things all the time. Give them at least 24 hours. It also depends on the nature of the story. So yes. if it's a very complex Steinhoff type accounting fraud that you are putting to the new board of directors, it's unfair to expect them even in 24 hours or two days to respond. They might need a week or so exactly. lead time or even more. Um, so hold the story until next week is correct. what I, I would do. Whereas you know, if it's and a I would do that because I'm not interested in the front page lead. I'm interested yes. in not being sued. I'm interested in getting gaining trust from my readership. Yes. And those people who are more interested in being first with the news are the ones who've gotten into this kind of trouble because they're competing with other media. And it's the one argument that doesn't work well at all in court is to say, I was trying to scoop my rival and that's why exactly. I rushed to publication. Mm. We know that there are many stories that simply would not have seen the light of day unless the sources were promised and, um, and given confidentiality. I mean, shouldn't journalists be protected when they legitimately employ confidential sources? And how do you recognize when it's a story that is deserving of confidentiality? Um, I mean, the New York Times had a policy, um, I think it still does, that if your source deliberately misleads you, your confidential source, they name the source. Um, your, yes. The protection goes at that point. Yes. The, the other interesting thing about confidential sources is that the ombudsman is allowed to ask for anon the names of anonymous sources and check them out, which I did in the Lukau case and I've done in a couple of cases. So I was convinced that most of the, the main allegations were, um, there was a basis for tr of truth in, in a lot of the allegations against him because I spoke to four or five people myself, yes. all of whom, by the way, were terrified for their lives, yes. which tells you about him. But in the rogue unit story, my, which my predecessor, Johan yes. Ratif, uh, uh, dealt with, he asked the Sunday Times reporters for their sources, and guess what they refused to give them? It was mm -hmm. one of the first times it's happened that the reporters have refused to hand over their sources. And if that happens, I think there's immediate grounds for the kind of scenario that you're being 
that you're being played in someone's agenda if they won't give you the sources. There are reasons why you need confidentiality. And I mean, in the Lukau case, people were just scared for their lives. They'd left town, they'd Mm -hmm. packed up, they didn't take calls, they changed their phone numbers. But in other cases, you just don't know what the Mm -hmm. the agenda is. So yes, there is a need to protect them and there's a need to keep them confidential, but there has to be a process whereby, and I think the ombudsman is the process, whereby they can be scrutinized Mm. at some stage. And perhaps it leads to a practical solution, which is for journalists to tell their sources, I'm promising you confidentiality. But I have to tell you that if there's a complaint before the Ombudsman or the BCCSA, if it's a broadcast um, or indeed in court, I might have to confidentially offer your identity to the adjudicator. Is that something that you're comfortable with? And and if the source says no, well, then the promise of confidentiality might not be able to be given. Mm-hmm. Because I, I certainly there are great strategic advantages for being able to say, as the media, we're not making the source up and you can now see who the source is. In a court environment, the difficulty is that the other side, the person suing or the corporate suing will say, well, I want an opportunity to cross-examine that person. And of course, you don't want to make the source known to the other side or to the public in an open court process. So certainly in court litigation, confidential sources are, are quite a bit trickier than what you're describing as your process at the ombudsman. Um, but, but it does also raise for me the issue of self-regulatory bodies, co-regulatory bodies. I mean, there are great benefits to these bodies. I'm a huge fan of the press ombudsman as an institution, the press council, the BCCSA. And that is not least because it offers access to justice. If you've been harmed in a newspaper or on a broadcast, you know, with no expense at all, you can complain to one of these bodies and they can adjudicate swiftly. By the same token, it allows the media a forum, if they're taken on, to show what they're, what they're worth, to show that the proof is, is in the documentation, is in the evidence, and to put up that proof. Um, but one of the problems, of course, that we face currently is that there are some major role players who are not parts of the system, who have mm. opted out of the system. I mean, Glenda, what does that do to a system of, of credibility for the media? It completely undermines the system. So if you have half your print media, independent newspapers, for instance, is the biggest set of English newspapers in the country, owner yes. of, and it doesn't belong to the, the council, it's pulled out, one or two others have as well. It does undermine the system because if you think you can go and have your own system, create your own laws when you need a whole bank shoot of newspapers and everyone belonging to one system and subscribing to one big code. So what does it say to the public and the readerships and the audiences? It says, it might say that we don't have a unified regulation system. It just gives these people, the people who are not part of the system, their own delinquent ways to go about regulating their stuff. In fact, with the jovial Rantau was the ombuds for independent, independent and he resigned recently and I don't think they've got a new person. Well, I'll tell you the thing about, about jovial, which is even more, it goes to the heart of credibility. So jovial left in about, about 10 months ago. Um, his name was in the paper on page two as the independent ombudsman Ombudsman. until about two weeks ago. 
So they never changed the name. They never put it out. I mean, the other thing is they had a panel of, including former, at least retired constitutional judge, Zaki Yacoub, as their panel of independent, their appeals panel. Yes. He resigned as well. That Did wasn't, he? yeah. That, I mean, that hasn't really been, been publicized. So the credibility of having your own internal ombud is very much less than an outside body. The only other kind of major publication that I know that's not a member of the press council is Nosewe, yes, which is not a member of anything yes. because <laughs> so because that's maverick, that's maverick, it's beyond they, maverick. Uh, it's beyond maverick. It's beyond maverick. And daily, you know, a lot of the 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 association of independent publishers, a lot of little community newspapers, of whom of which we get quite a lot of complaints about, are all members. We have five hundred and something members. It's, oh, it's, just, it's just over 500, so it's pretty big. Mm-hmm. But, the, but of course, it, it also affects our finances because the media industry pays subscription fees to the press council. So when Independent pulled out, it affects the sustainability of the press council as well. I mean, and I personally have no problem with an internal ombudsman, but you should also then have an external ombudsman. So, for instance, the Mail and Guardian had Franz Kruger for some time and he would publish pieces where he would deal with complaints or criticize the Mail and Guardian for the way they had handled a particular story in the Mail and Guardian. His, his criticism was published. But of course, the aggrieved party could always go to the press ombudsman uh, or the court, of course. Um, and another problem uh, is that if you are going to do an internal ombudsman mechanism, you should publish your decisions regularly. Yeah. Um, and and so that the the public can have credi- can see that it's credible and can can witness that and and it bears testimony to that credibility. And on the issue of privacy, because this is often a contested terrain for the media and for public figures in particular, you know we haven't had the kind of excesses that you've seen in the UK with phone hacking and so on. But there is still a great deal of uncertainty about how to balance public interest and privacy. And a recent example that comes to mind is the Daily Maverick article where the EFF's trash was surveyed by a journalist who then wrote on the contents of that. What are the guidelines and parameters for journalists about public interest and privacy? Glenda, maybe you want to start? Well, just to go be beyond or before the case of the trash, uh, Marion Tam, Jane yes. Maverick's trash story on um, the EFF, uh, you'll remember the Manto Shabalala Msimang story, a drunk and yes. a thief headline yes. in the Sunday Times. And I defended that story because she's a public figure and she's a health minister at the time. So, you know, she I'm not saying nobody, because you're a public figure, you don't have any right to to privacy. But when certain things happen and you're doing certain things and you're a health minister, it's totally relevant to have a front page story of that nature. And a lot of people would say, no, that isn't the case. So, you know, it really depends on everybody's um, how far and how much. And I think you can't have too much. I mean, I generally err on the side of the more freedom, the better not the libertarian side of, of uh, press freedom where anyone can say anything about anyone and go and peep into people's bedroom windows, etc. So in the case of uh, the Daily Maverick's trash story, yes. it's a contentious issue. There are two sides to the argument. Um, for instance, I was interviewed and uh, Professor Herman Wasserman from UCT was interviewed on yes. that issue. He said completely the opposite things. 
he said it was totally unnecessary. You can get that information about the EFF without going into their trash. And maybe he's right. But then as a journalist, if she wanted to get certain information about the EFF to expose the excesses of the kind of champagne you're drinking and how much it costs, uh, etc., I actually didn't have a huge problem with it. I just thought this is... It was pretty powerful evidence to prove that thesis. Yeah, especially because like like with the Mantoum Simang Shabalala story, you are a health minister and you've got this problem and you're jumping cues to go and get your other kidney in a hospital and etc, etc, etc. In this particular case, this is a socialist party who's talking about poverty and is talking about redistribution of resources and the land and etc. And then this is what they're doing. So I would defend that journalist's right to do that kind mm. of story. I mean, Papa, you've already, in your role as press ombudsman, had to grapple with the balance between privacy and, and public interest. You know, there's public interest and there's who's a public figure. And I've done two rulings involving privacy, um, and both of them involve public figures. And I've come to different conclusions on each one because of the context. So one was Zizi Kodwa, when he was then the president of the ANC spokesperson. And Papa Leshebani of Basasa put up a picture on Facebook of him and... Zizi, kind of chummy, you know, at Moscow soccer game and with a World Cup. And and News24 ran a story about it because it was at the time, just shortly after the Agritzi testimony at the the State Capture Commission, and Zizi Kodwa complained. And one of the grounds for his complaint was that his privacy was being interfered. It didn't accuse him of wrongdoing, by the way. And I ruled in, in News24's favour in that case. Yes. He appealed and Judge Nguepe up, upheld my ruling on the right. grounds that he was a public figure and this was in the public domain. Um, and But the other one, which was far more tricky, was a case involving Robert Marawa, the right. sports the broadcaster. Mm. Yeah. And I think it was you know, my favourite, the Daily Sun or the Sunday Sun, that had picked up from social media, I think Instagram, posts from a young Namibian would-be broadcaster woman who'd basically claimed that he was the father of her unborn baby and um, and that she, he was claiming, she was claiming a whole lot of money from mm-hmm. him. Anyway, he had a lawyer, he had quite a fierce lawyer who, who, who'd approached her before they'd approached me and yes. asked, him, asked her for a pregnancy test and a paternity test, all of which she hadn't done and she'd gone back to... I think he eventually got a restraining order against her and she went back to Namibia. Anyway, this was written about. And he he complained on various grounds, but including that his privacy was being mm-hmm. was being breached. And it was difficult because he is a very public figure. I think it was clear he had some kind of relationship with her, but that in itself, I thought, wasn't sufficient um, it wasn't wrongdoing in and of itself to violate his right to privacy. And there wasn't really an overriding public interest in, in that. And I made the ruling and the paper didn't appeal and the ruling still stands. So it, it, it also, I mean, quite frankly, the story, it was just, it was just wrong. You know, you can't take a Instagram post of an aggrieved person yes. and in and of itself make it a news story, even though they ran his right of reply. And it was the same as, as Glenda said, they WhatsApped him questions yes. on the 
on the kind of Saturday at lunchtime. And his lawyer replied, or he replied at kind of four o'clock that afternoon. It's a bit late in the day. Mm -hmm. And what it does illustrate both those examples, Pepe, if I may say, is how it's very fact-specific, which is also the way the courts approach privacy. It's very context-specific. I mean, maybe moving to ethics in the online media world, the press code now regulates user-generated content, which is one of the big issues for you know, media platforms around the world. And it takes the approach, which is analogous really to the South African legal position, which is notice and takedown. If you've been notified that your media platform contains, for example, hate speech, and you take it down expeditiously, you're not liable, but if you leave it up, you have to defend it. Is that too generous to the media? Do you think that the media should be, we should be more strict in terms of how we regulate, particularly hate speech in our context that is published on media platforms? Perhaps you could well, help you us know, with that. We've got, um, the Press Council is developing social media guidelines, but let me just say two, two things about that. Is that one is that we can only regulate what our members do in their official capacity. For the rest, we can advise editors what kind of jurisdiction they should have over their reporters. I mean, I'm sometimes quite alarmed at how reporters who are reporting courts or the police or yes. politics or whatever actually just put their own opinion on social media all the time. And there's nothing that's more valuable about a reporter's opinion than a plumber's opinion. They just happen to be a reporter. <laughs> that's their job, you know. I would tend to be more conservative about that, but it's not my call. But where where hate speech is a is is published by one of our members, we do we do have jurisdiction. If you're talking about those comments under yes under stories, yes. that that is the editor's responsibility. The editor and the editors often do take it down, and then we get complaints. As I keep saying, the more freedom, the better. The more yes. we can speak out, the better. Yes. The more we can say things, and people find it funny, the better. However. I'm not saying I've changed my mind about that, but what I've seen recently is the gendered, sexualized violence of women against yes. women, uh, you know, on, on social media, and that's made me extremely distressed because once you start uh, telling your followers to start raping sure. women because of what she's written, we're in a dangerous zone, dangerous territory. So. That's when I step in to say something needs to be done about what we call the haters on social media, the hate, hate, hatred of women, you know, cyber misogyny, the, the call to rape, the call to death threats for women. I mean, you've, you've seen that, Pippa, as well. And um, so I don't know what should be done about that, but I think immediately that happens. It needs to be called out. Some of us write stories about it. We do research about it. We we get women to start talking up, talking out, speaking up about it. And I think there's something that needs to be done about it. It's not a national problem. It's an international problem. And somehow Correct. I think that there needs to be an international consensus about how Some we sort deal of solution. with this problem. And of course, anonymity on the internet makes yes, that problem a trolling. real problem and, yes. a, and a, a really difficult problem legally to resolve, yes. for instance. No, but you see, I mean, I agree, I agree, obviously, but you see, that there's a different instrument to deal with that. The instrument to deal with that is criminal law, if you can track them down. It's Correct. not the press code. It's not Correct. about media ethics. No, absolutely. It, it's about journalists, perhaps it's about harassment of journalists, but it's not something that you sure. can bring 
to the press council because we don't have control over, you know, sort of whoever it is, Mr. Malema's admirer on the other side of the country who might post this stuff. I mean, I, I think that there should be civil society groups that deal with that as a matter of criminal law, but sure. it's not a matter of media ethics. It's a matter of media ethics if reporters actually engage with mm. that kind of stuff, I think, and retweet or say, yes, she Correct. deserves it. Right. Then it's a matter for the editors to intervene. Or, or if, as a user-generated comment, it appears on the media's platform and they don't remove yes. it. I mean, that, that's where exactly. media ethics would kick in. Yeah. I mean, final thoughts. I mean, you're both champions of freedom of expression, media freedom. It seems to me, and I'm sure you'll agree, that media freedom goes hand in hand with media responsibility. Glenda. It should be promoting the press code. It should have it up in every newsroom. I said that at Sanev, we all agreed with it, but somehow there's not enough money to buy posters to put up the press code so that <laughs> everyone, you know, you know what I'm saying? So, it should be a pinned tweet on every journalist. <laughs> exactly. So, Twitter you know, handle. I'll write to reply how you should be doing things, etc. So I think that struggle for survival clashes with the kind of media ethics we want to promote. And, and that's the kind of conundrum we find ourselves in. It's, it's actually rather unfortunate. It's very mm. sad. I wish it was different. But, you know, Pippa might have a more optimistic view because you I have been so. training in, in newsrooms. And I haven't been doing training in newsrooms. I've been doing research on the state of the newsroom. And the kind of research that's come back to me is that we're in a dire situation. situation. Yeah, we don't know whether we'll have jobs next month. It's that kind of situation. Pippa, perhaps you can lift our spirits. <laughs> I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> I think, look, I think things are quite tough economically, but I also think there's always going to be a need for news. And I think something like Daily Maverick has done, has dealt with that need quite innovatively. Yes. And they're members of the press council. So when it used to be a platform just for comment, it's now becoming mm -hmm. a much more disciplined news platform. So if you mm -hmm. want to read what happened in the State Capture Commission yesterday, you'll, you'll get it there. Yes, you will. As well as somebody else's kind of comment. And, and really, I think we're long on comment in this, long on opinion and short on news mm. in this country. Mm. But let me say one positive or a couple of positive things. One is that there is almost 100% compliance with our rulings at the press code, at the press council. So it's not as though people are just ignoring it. Um, there's an appeals process, and I think if they're really unhappy with Judge Ngwepi's, um ruling, they can they, they can, can go on review. Sure. But it, I don't think that, that that hasn't happened to my knowledge. So I think that there are basic things to be done, and I think we are in a crisis, but I don't think news will go because the need for it is just too overwhelming. It's almost like air. So yeah, Well, I like that, and I'm very relieved to hear you say that. Well, that's all we have time for today. Unfortunately, I'd like to give a very warm thank you to our guests, Press Ombudsman Pippa Green and Associate Professor Glenda Daniels. This has been Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. I've been your host, Dario Milo. I'll be guiding you through this first season of podcasts on media law. Our executive producer is Paula Yoens. This podcast is produced for Weber Wenzel by volume. Until next time, publish responsibly. You have been listening to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. You can find and subscribe to the podcast on all major platforms. For more expert legal insights and updates, visit WeberWenzel.com.